but yeah, everyone is dealing with different issues. I, I was talking to one head coach and he didn't really seem like in the mood to talk draft at all. And I could tell he was distracted and he's like, I'm sorry. He's like, my, my internet just keeps going down. And then he just kind of moved the phone and screamed on the top of his lungs. Everybody get off the internet in like the most dad voice you could hear. Um, so I was like, Hey, uh, I'll just call you later. Bye. And I, and I just got off the phone. <laughs> That was ESPN NFL reporter Diana Rusevi describing some of the technical difficulties that teams have experienced ahead of tonight's virtual draft. Like many of us, GMs are working from home, and the league is praying nothing goes wrong. Will chaos set in? And when the draft bells chime, which picks will take us by surprise? I'm Ina Kimes. It's Thursday, April 23rd. This is ESPN Daily. Field, before we get into the draft, the most important question, how's the new puppy? Mina, I have not slept very much recently. I heard a lot of things about being a first-time parent, whether it's of a canine or a human, and I don't think I was properly prepared, but that's okay. Because the dog is ridiculously cute. He brings us a ton of happiness. And he's decreased his number of accidents exponentially since the day that we first picked him up. Field Yates is an NFL insider for ESPN and the proud parent of a new golden retriever. Well, let's hope that NFL GMs are more prepared for tonight's draft than you were for your new puppy. Field, you and I have been covering the draft for a while now, but this is a draft unlike any other Let's start with the really obvious question. Functionally, how is this going to work? Well, Mina, football guys aren't often the most tech savvy of individuals, but they're going to have to be for three days starting tonight. While general managers or head coaches that make the final decision on their personnel are not going to be in the same place as their cohorts in the front office. They're going to be connected. So I have three screens up here. To the right and to the left will be, you know, draft needs as well as team by team grades and boards. Have two 27 inch monitors here that are touch screen for me. Uh, on the left side would be the offensive draft board. On the right side will be the defensive draft board. We'll be operating from my board. It'll be uh, sent out and everyone can follow my moves. You're going to see a lot of general managers or head coaches with seven, eight, or 10 monitors in their home office. And basically the draft is going to kind of work comparably to how it did many, many years ago when it was a dial-in draft. It's going to be one person responsible for much of the legwork to communicate to the league who they are selecting. So if you're an NFL GM, you're on the clock You just have to call in your pick, right? I mean, it doesn't seem that complicated. The actual execution of calling in the pick, Mina, should be the easy part. Where I think it becomes a little bit trickier is just the idea that the draft is a very collaborative process. And basically everything beyond pick one has some element of mystery. So it's a matter of how quickly you can react and process what has happened uh, ahead of you 
while also doing so from potentially hundreds of miles away from the people that you most trust who are also working on these decisions with you. So the NFL has said we will have a fail safe. You know, if something goes wrong for you calling in your pick, we can stop the clock. But as you point out, the technological issues might not stem from actually executing the pick, but processing information, communicating with your staff. Can the NFL or will the NFL stop the clock if you have problems on that front? Yeah, I think the NFL basically has said like, They are going to use reasonable judgment to stop the clock if need be in a legitimate issue of malfunction. You can't have a team that's on the clock and at nine minutes and 45 seconds into a first round pick, which is only 10 minutes, and then call up the league office and say, hey, we've got an issue. And like, there's going to be a way, and I'm not quite sure how the NFL will do this, but they will have to find a way to regulate and prevent teams just taking their time. So the league held a mock draft on Monday to test how the virtual draft would proceed. How did the test go? Yeah, so the NFL's mock draft on Monday went like this, Mina. They took the initial order of the first round, started with the Bengals and finished with the Chiefs. They began with Cincinnati, who traded the pick to the team 16 slots behind them, which was the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys were then to make a pick and... The next operation would be the Redskins, who had the second overall pick in the draft, were to trade the pick to the Pittsburgh Steelers, at which point they would have made a selection. The problem is, before the draft really even got going in earnest, the NFL dealt with some technological glitches. And on the very first pick, when the Bengals run the clock, there was a glitch that lasted about two and a half minutes. And there are a variety of them, and speaking to people who were part of that exercise, you know, it certainly sounded a little bit clumsy at the beginning of it. Now, that being said, Mina, I have heard from several people that have pushed back and said, I know you guys had fun with it on Twitter, but we're glad that we got it out of our system early. We'd much rather deal with those curveballs during a Monday mock draft simulation than during Thursday night. So after the initial hiccups, things went very smoothly. We have been seeing pictures of the different GM setups. We heard that Matt Patricia and the Lions, I think he's got a the IT guys in a Winnebago on his driveway, I believe is the last thing we heard. I think it's actually over at GM Bob Quinn's house. That's taking measures to the extreme to ensure that you have the proper connectivity. And as we know, the Lions are one of the teams that has been heavily speculated upon to potentially be a trade team tonight. And the last thing that Bob Quinn would want would be to be in the middle of a phone call with a prospective trade up candidate and not be able to execute that trade because of a technological hangup. Well, trades would be the thing I think most affected by all of this, right? Not the actual execution of a pre-planned pick, but the frenzy of communications that sometimes happen on draft night before a big trade. They'll try to, you know, have some of these trades worked out before Thursday, but when word gets out that the Eagles are moving up for CeeDee Lamb, what's the chance another team isn't able to communicate or put forward a rival offer for the pick? Yeah, and it also creates a scenario where if what you're referencing happens, 
What are the repercussions if a team reneges on a deal? Mm. Is it the honor code that allows a deal to hold up if it was agreed to prior to the draft? I think that that's a very slippery slope. And the other thing about making deals prior to the draft is that they are executed with a preconceived idea of what's going to take place. Well, other than like picks one through three, everything else requires so many different alternative plans that if something goes in a way that one of the two GMs involved in a trade did not anticipate, what's going to prevent that GM from saying, hey, you know something? I know we had talked through the iterations of this deal, but I'm just not comfortable making it anymore. So what you're saying is, while we might not have glitches or hacking, we could have chaos. We absolutely could have chaos, which is great. And I always appreciate when people ask me in advance of the draft, what's the biggest surprise going to be? To which my retort is, (laughs) if I knew what the surprise was going to be, it wouldn't be much of a surprise. That being said, it feels, Mina, like we are less informed about all of the nuances and details of the process than we normally are, right? Mm -hmm. We haven't had pro days. We haven't had the chance to say, oh, well, we happen to see, and again, this is just making it up here, Rick Spielman, the Vikings GM, was at the Alabama Pro Day, and then he was also at the West Virginia Pro Day. We haven't connected those dots Field, what about the players? I mean, normally they're at the draft. Not always. Some of them have, you know, their watch parties at home. What is this experience going to be like for them? Yeah, it's definitely different. But I have appreciated some of the players that have taken this time to reflect, Mina, and share that, hey, the place that I want to be most on one of the most special nights of my life is with the people that have been there with me from the start of this journey. So I've appreciated all the players that have shared that while they're not going to be on a stage and I'm imagining none of them will be wearing, well, at least most of them will not be wearing one of the very fancy suits that we often see during draft night. And they won't get to do their dap with uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell or Bear Hug or Christian Wilkins leap last year that we saw, which was tremendous. I do think these players will still have an appreciation for the moment. I think the biggest difference beyond the players not being there is just the fan atmosphere, right? It has created such a great vibe around the draft. And that's something that is impossible to replicate tonight. And that, to me, will be one of the missing pieces to the puzzle. All right. After the break, let's talk about how this very chaotic draft might actually shake up. So, Field, over the last few weeks, we have been trying to figure out which team is going to pick which player. But as you mentioned, everyone's board can get shaken up real quickly, especially if there's a trade up early on. 
I think the first spot at which that might happen is around three or four, right before the Dolphins and Chargers, who are both potentially in the quarterback market, pick. On Monday, Mel Kiper Jr. told us why he thought Justin Herbert might be rising since then, as of earlier this week, Vegas is actually favoring him to go over to a, what is the latest you've been hearing on that front? Well, Mina, I know it's incomprehensible for some people that Tua could go below Justin Herbert. Really, the biggest question mark with Tua is, of course, his health. Now, I understand that Tua Tungavailoa was examined by the Tennessee Titans team doctor, who, by the way, is considered one of the foremost doctors on hips in the world. Now, that being said, teams want to have their own set of eyes on a player that has some sort of physical issue, especially when it's a quarterback, and even more especially when it's a hip, which, as we know, is one of the trickiest parts of the body for recovery. If Tua slips in this draft, Mina, and I think anything past the top six would be considered a slide for Tua, we know there's a driving force of the medicals behind it. Whereas with Justin Herbert, if he is somewhere lower than pick six or pick seven, or maybe even further down outside of the top 10, what it means is that the league never necessarily liked Justin Herbert as much as maybe some of us that were evaluating him on the outside, because there's no medical question marks, no character question marks. Right now, if I had to guess going into tonight, Justin Herbert has a very good chance to be selected ahead of Tua Tunga-Vailoa, but I always remind people it just takes one team. Let's say Tua does fall. As you mentioned, past six, right, would be considered a major slip for him. Which teams might be in the market for him at that point? I think the Raiders are really interesting, not just because they're relatively close past six, but also because of the fact that they have two first-round picks this year. Again, this is the last first-round pick they have from the Bears as part of the Khalil Mack trade. Beyond that, although they have two veteran quarterbacks on their roster, Marcus Mariota being signed after Derek Carr being the incumbent quarterback, Tua might need a redshirt year. And I understand the health reports right now are overwhelmingly positive, but I don't think it will be a negative for Tua to be slow played into his NFL existence. And then the question would be whether anybody has the ammo and the ambition yeah. to make a substantial move up the draft board. And at that point, Mina, it's sort of unpredictable. Like, I certainly could connect the dots to the Patriots because of their current quarterback situation. But I think there are a handful of teams that would have to pay a steep price, but you could at least make the case for if you are a believer in Tua. If the Patriots somehow get to a field and I'm another GM, I'm just lobbying to stop the draft. And I'm going to say I was hacked. I am filing a protest, just anything to stop it from happening. It would certainly be one of the most fascinating stories of the night. It will be the story of the night, obviously, because no matter who it is that eventually becomes the Patriots starter this year, replacing Tom Brady is going to be a tall order. So amidst all of this draft talk, a guy who we don't actually feel like we don't talk about him very much because he's so good is Chase Young, who Washington is, of course, expected to pick 
second overall, the pass rusher out of Ohio State. He's kind of slipped through the cracks of conversation. How good is he? He's prodigious. Poe had it stripped by guess who? Chase Young. Maybe the best player in America. I try to be selective with that word during the draft process, Mina, because I think that sometimes during the draft process, we just get a little bit hyperbolic in general. But he has every trait desirable in a pass rusher. He's got incredible length. He's got great explosion. He's powerful. He's instinctive, gets his hands on a lot of passes when he isn't able to reach the quarterback. He can drop in coverage, which you might say is a bit of wasted utility. He does it all. So the next point in the draft where I think we might see some trade activity is where the Cardinals pick at eight and then the Jets and the Raiders. A lot of people expect there to be a run on wide receivers around there. Do you think teams that need a receiver like the Eagles or Vikings might try to leapfrog those teams and get in the mix? It's going to cost a lot. If you look at recent trades that involved that have involved the team going up from anywhere in the 20s up to around pick 10, you are paying not just this year's first round pick, but next year's first round pick almost assuredly in a deal. So I think it's possible that those teams will sniff around on such a trade. But I also think given the depth of this class, this might be a year where teams are a bit more patient with their wide receiver needs, understanding that while they won't get someone like CeeDee Lamb or Jerry Judy, you might have a chance at another player that is ready-made to be a starter at wide receiver pretty much right away. Field, if Justin Herbert is the quarterback who's been surging over the last couple of weeks, which of the receivers has been the biggest riser? You know, I always hesitate on the term riser and faller at this time, Mina, especially on the riser side. But a player that I think maybe is more solidified as the fourth best wide receiver than maybe I had realized before is Justin Jefferson out of LSU, who had incredible production for that high-powered national championship winning team. Burrow, deep again, on target again, Jefferson again, touchdown again. Unbelievable. Watch the little hesitation, and then he creates separation, and Joe Burrow says, I'm going to give him a chance to make a play, and Jefferson comes through. Although he operated mostly out of the slot, or at least a lot out of the slot for LSU. I think there are teams that certainly protect him as a player that can handle basically any role within an offense. So while he may not necessarily be a riser, maybe it is that CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs III are tier one. Justin Jefferson is in a mini tier by himself. And then the rest of the wide receiver class really gets interesting. Ohio State has the record for most players ever drafted in a single year with 14. You recently tweeted, you think LSU could break that. I won't ask you to name all of the prospects, but who are some of the players other than Joe Burrow who could go early in the draft? Yeah, I mentioned Justin Jefferson earlier on. So moving on from he and Burrow Guys that feel like their locks to go in the first round include Caleb on chase on their best pass rushing prospect in this year's class. Christian Fulton is a cornerback who has a chance to go in the first round and a guy who plays with plenty of athletic confidence, which you do love. B. 
Beyond that, I think there is a, it's a very good chance that Patrick Queen, their linebacker, who had an incredible second half of last season, goes in the first round. That right there is a handful of LSU prospects that could certainly go in the first round. And then, as you were alluding to, there were 14 LSU players in the Scouts, Inc. top 200 prospects for this year's class. So if you just do the math, not that every player in the top 200 of Scouts, Inc., their board gets drafted, but you know if there are 256 selections and we already have 15 guys penciled in within our own top 200 evaluations, there's at least a chance we see all of them be selected Thursday through Saturday. All right, Field, you know the Patriots as well as anyone, so I can't let you go without asking, even though it's not about the draft. Were you surprised that they only got a fourth for Gronk, and how much upside do you think he actually brings Tampa Bay at this point? I wasn't surprised by the draft pick compensation they received, and here's the reason why. There aren't a lot of examples of players that have been retired and subsequently traded, but there was a one-team market for Gronk. And he was on a one-year deal. And it's not a one-year deal for like $1 million where other teams could have talked themselves into it. It's a one-year deal worth up to $10 million. It's a substantial financial investment that the Bucks are going to have to make for Gronk next year. And they were the only team he was willing to play for because they're the only team with Tom Brady. The Patriots had 12 picks prior to that trade six of them were in the sixth or seventh round. Now, they still have 12 picks, but one of those picks has been boosted from a seventh rounder to a fourth rounder. And I'm not saying they simply got a free fourth round pick, but given the fact that the alternative was for them to allow Gronk to continue to stay on the reserve slash retired list and collect dust and WWE championships, I think they feel like it's a net positive addition yesterday. Well, if they go out and get Tua, I'm sure Patriots fans won't be sad for long. The rest of us will be very upset, though. I would imagine that will be the exact reaction meeting. As somebody who lives in Boston, I can imagine, well, I guess we don't necessarily have retail stores open for some period of time, but the Patriots website will be busy with printing Tua jerseys right away. <laughs> it won't take long for those to become a most popular item in the New England region. Well, Field, I will see you in a few hours remotely over Zoom when you and I do a show reacting to the picks tonight. You can catch us on Twitter. And if the world is lucky, Lenny and Cisco, Cisco is my dog's name, will also be there as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, buddy. Thank you. Coming up, a college basketball legend calls it a day. another story I want you to know. On Wednesday afternoon, 
legendary college basketball coach Muffet McGraw announced that she's retiring from coaching the women's team at Notre Dame after 33 years. While Coach McGraw is coming off of a down season after losing many of her starters last year, her career has been nothing short of remarkable. She has led the team to two national championships in 2001 and 2018, and is one of just five Division I men's and women's coaches with more than 930 wins. Three years ago, she was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. McGraw's impact on the game goes beyond the sport of basketball. This time last year, she made waves when she revealed that going forward, she planned to only hire women on her coaching staff. This is how she explained the decision. How are these young women looking up and seeing someone that looks like them, preparing them for the future? We don't have enough female role models. We don't have enough visible women leaders. We don't have enough women in power. Girls are socialized to know when they come out, gender roles are already set. Men run the world. Men have the power. Men make the decisions. It's always the men that is the stronger one. And when these girls are coming out, who are they looking up to to tell them that that's not the way it has to be? And where better to do that than in sports? Her words, which provoked strong reactions around the sports world and beyond, went viral. And they continue to resonate today. As Notre Dame announced, she will be replaced by one of her former players and assistants, Neil Ivey. Ivey was just on the staff of the Memphis Grizzlies and will be stepping into some pretty big shoes in South Bend. I'm Ina Kimes, and this has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.